Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Welcome to More Than Amused Podcast, a podcast all about women and the arts, hosted by Stani and Sadie. Join us as we explore what it's like being a female artist, examine modern day problems, and educate ourselves and you on important and forgotten female well, artists. Welcome back, of everyone, the past. to More Than Amuse. I'm Stani. And I am Sadie. And whether you are joining us for the first time today or you are a longtime listener, we appreciate you and we are so happy that you are here and listening today. Yes, we are. Sadie has a new artist for us to hear about. Mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. To start this out, as the discussion point before we jump into who we're talking about today, and and you'll see how it connects, is I kind of want to talk about like relationships with women because I wondered if you were also like this because I was definitely the super typical annoying girl in high school who was like, girls are drama. I get along with boys better. I don't like hanging out with girls like you and then Kiana. You guys were like Mm -hmm. my two girlfriends in high school. And then I was so proud of myself for being so close with mainly boys. And I wondered (laughs) if that was something you at all related to. Because being in college like that and like growing up, that's something I was like, wait a minute. Like woman friendships are the best friendships. And I had to like Mm -hmm. cure myself of that negative thinking. I will say I was, but I think it was younger. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, like, all of my friends in elementary and at the beginning of junior high were all boys for the most part. Uh And I usually had, like, a few friends that were girls, but, like, my very best friend for most of elementary was a boy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, like, I had all brothers. Oh, so so that kind of makes sense. I was really used to being around guys. However, um, I had a really bad experience with a group of friends that were boys in junior high and then after that I pretty much have been friends with girls mainly mm-hmm. since then I so. think that's kind of what finally did it for me is I kind of realized that like wait all of these guys like I feel like I was friends with a couple guys who I was like wow we're so close we're best friends and then in retrospect mm-hmm. I'm like they just like were trying to date me <laughs> like they weren't yep. my friends they were just yeah trying to date me and then it made me not want friendships with them because I was like I can't trust this like they have <laughs> ulterior motives they don't actually just care about me for friendship's sake no exactly and not that like I'm the most I know I was gonna say bachelor. I feel like I'm the one that's like all these guys <laughs> just wanted to date me because that's not but it. no I just I think there's a quote from like the movie when Harry met a Sally uh-huh. that talks about how like men and women just can't be friends because like one of them always ends up wanting something from the other one mm-hmm. and I think like even if you look at modern tiktok trends how there's always a video that comes up that's like i'm telling my best friend that i love him today yeah (laughs) like you know it always happens like i just think that especially when you're younger relationships like that just aren't really possible yeah (laughs) (laughs) as sad as that is once you're like a obviously like once you're kind of like more grown up and mature like Mm -hmm. like i'm married and i have obviously other guys and men in my life where i'm like oh yeah they're my friends and mm-hmm. and there I'm very secure in those yes. friendships and I know Jordan is and I know everything's great and fine as it should be cuz I yeah yeah but it's like almost a different kind of friendship relationship yeah, yeah I could see that mhm I just yeah I'm you know like those videos on TikTok I feel like we're talking about TikTok more and more now on the podcast as it continues <laughs> I know sorry guys we're addicted I love TikTok listen but anyways like those like point of view where it's like the girl who thinks she's one of the guys or the girl who thinks that like girls are too much drama and I'm just like like high school me is getting called out like I'm sorry women I love you that's okay I think it's pretty normal I think a lot of girls like they want to be the cool girl you know like oh I'm the cool girl, the the guy's girl, just one of the guys, and mm-hmm. um, it's okay not to be. I know. It's kind of like the internalized 
misogyny of like you don't want to be a girl you don't want girls to think you're cool because if girls think you're cool then you're not actually cool you know what I mean but now Mm -hmm. it's like if a girl thinks I'm cool I'm like oh my gosh a cool person a cool girl thinks I'm cool like what is the higher compliment than that (laughs) oh my gosh this is kind of a side tangent really quick but I saw this TikTok yesterday where there was a girl and she was dressed kind of like I don't know in like a beanie and a band t-shirt and had like black nail polish and everything you know Mm -hmm. and then all of these like punk songs were coming on and um she didn't know any of them and then this other girl duetted it and put like poser over her face and then put like real alt girl and she had like blue hair and piercings and stuff and she knew all of the songs and she put all of her fingers down and I was sitting there and I was like okay I do not identify as an alt girl I'm not trying to be Mm -hmm. but I knew every single song that came on yeah and it was just kind of like why does it matter like if she dresses alt and then she doesn't know the alt songs like who mm-hmm. cares in a lot of ways and it was just kind of weird to me to like call her out like that in like such an unnecessary way for like not knowing a couple of songs that you think are really important totally or it's kind of like when a girl's like oh I like this band or like the Beatles and it's like okay name every song and it's like yeah I, <laughs> like why can't, chill out. why can't I just <laughs> passively enjoy something and say that when I like listen to the Beatles I like it I yeah I've seen like I think there was that was a trend a while ago when it's like oh when like men say that they love history it's like okay name every person name every person (laughs) name every significant person in history like you can't do it I think that's a fitting tangent where it's almost like women can criticize other women and just people criticize but I think women get a lot of criticism for it when it's like why can't people just like things yeah I often think that the biggest critics of women tend to be other women. women. Dealing and it's with... all of us just battling with our own internalized misogyny. Yeah. Just a reminder to let everyone be themselves this week. Yeah, just a reminder <laughs> to like let people like things and be happy. It's so easy just, just to let leave it that go. alone. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't affect you in any way. No, absolutely not. So the kind of reason why I wanted to talk about that is because I kind of... I'm actually talking mainly about one person, but as a sister, a pair of sisters today. Okay. And their relationship with each other is very, very important, um, especially in the life of the older sister. And was as I was researching about them and like kind of listening and reading about their impact on each other, it was like made me just like really think about like the women relationships in my life you know and I was like Mm -hmm. I feel like I wish I would have learned that lesson so much younger that like women relationships are so important and like of course I always had like my cousin that I was always really really close to and I had you know like you in high school I had my best friend Kiana Mm -hmm. I had my mom and my little sister like I had relationships around me but I think that for so long I was like eh women girls aren't I don't want to be friends with girls and then when I was like in college and now a lot of the people I'm close with from college are like, you know, friends, mm-hmm. girl friendships. And I'm just like, this, these are the best. Like, I love these friendships. Yeah. Like they, I don't know. It's just important, I think, to find those relationships. And I wish I would have learned Definitely. that lesson sooner. No, I agree. I think they're very important. And I think they end up shaping you more than any other relationship does. I Mm -hmm. agree with that. Okay, well, let me just dive in then to who we are talking about. So we're going back and we're talking about another... Um, I'm talking about someone else in classical music. It's been a while. I think it's been since Maria Anna Mozart. I think so, yeah. Today we are talking about the sister duo Nadia and Lily Boulanger. They're French. So I might be saying that name the last name wrong but you know for a very brief state of the arts this family lived through a very um tumultuous time in history nadia who was the older sister of the two was born in 1887 and she lived through the first world war the great depression and the second world war holy crap like no thanks no big deal right (laughs) yeah when people are like what time period do you want to live in not that one not (laughs) that one so like i said that's a very brief state of the arts um we've talked a lot about women um women artists in the 1800s a lot of like Mm. you know i think this is the time period just right after clara schumann 
it might be kind of her contemporary, but she was definitely like older. You know what I mean? By the time she yeah. was born. So we also covered a lot of 19th century. Yeah, we have as well. But OK, so like I said, Nadia was born in 1887. Lily was born in 1893, um, a couple years after her. They were born and lived in Paris, France. They were born into a very musical family. Their father was a professional musician. He had some success as an opera performer and a composer, and he won the Prix de Rome in 1836, which was like a very big deal, like music composition competition. Mm. And you'll t- we'll talk a lot about that Prix de Rome as it continues, because I think because their father was such a, like he won that, and that's what brought him success as a musician. That was definitely a goal for both of the sisters, and that was something that they were pursuing, was winning that competition or that prize. Was it like a writing and performing competition or just a performing? Composition. Like, it was writing music. Yeah. That's cool. That was a really big deal um, that he won that, and that kind of what brought him success as a musician in Paris. And he ended up being a vocal, vocal teacher in the Paris Conservatoire. Um, throughout his life so very accomplished musician and their mother um, was Racia oh dear Miss Getsky I believe um, she's from Russia and she was a Russian princess which is cool and Whoa. she actually so how she met their father and by the way their father was Ernest Boulanger um, she was his student at the P- Paris Conservatoire so I don't really know how they met her exactly. <laughs> Another one of those teacher-student yeah. relationships I'm like, in history. Um, I don't, we don't need to comment on <laughs> that. But so like I said, Nadia was born in 1887. Sister was born in 1893. Um, and at Lily's birth, apparently the father asked Nadia to pretty much vow to always take care of her. Um, and to like really, you know, make sure she's okay. And that's something that she very much took seriously in her life. Um, at the age of two, Lily was, um, suffered from bronchial pneumonia, really bad thing, obviously. And apparently that's a disease that she never really recovered from. So throughout her life, she suffered with chronic illness and that was something that she dealt with a lot. But diving into their early life here... So they are both, like, they were both musical prodigies. Lily Boulanger, um, so the younger sister, um, apparently at the age of two, Gabrielle Faré, and Faré is a very accomplished, famous musical composer. If you know classical composers, you you know Faré. Um, And he was a friend of the family, and he actually discovered that she had perfect pitch, which is insane. Wow. I know. Yeah. And, um, but, and like I said, her parents, though, who, both of whom were musicians, very much encouraged both of their daughters' obvious musical interest and in education. So Nadia, though, who was the first one, apparently, this is kind of a weird story where her parents were very active musically, obviously, you know, with her dad being a composer, her mom being a singer, and not, but Nadia would get really upset at hearing music and pretty much just like go and hide until it stopped. But then when she was five years old, her mom became pregnant again. And then during that pregnancy, for some reason, Nadia's response to music completely changed. Um, and then there's a quote. It said, one day I heard a fire bell. Instead of crying out and hiding, I rushed to the piano and tried to reproduce the sounds. My parents were amazed. And then after this, she paid a lot of t- attention to just her father's singing lessons and just began began to kind of just study music on her own. So I just thought that That's was crazy. interesting that like she so was actively against it. And then when yeah. her mom was pregnant with her little sister is when something switched in her and she became obsessed with it. So she goes from being terrified to like being a little child prodigy. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, So in 1896, when Nadia was nine years old is when she entered the Paris Conservatoire as a student. She studied there with Faré, who, like I mentioned, was a friend of the family, a very great composer. And she came in third in the 1897 Solfege competition and then won the first prize in 1898. For those who don't know Solfege, it's the do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. That syllables attached to notes and everything. So my point, though, is like, you know, she's nine years old winning these competitions within the conservatoire. She's doing very well. But then her little sister Lily would also accompany her to her classes 
um, at this. Mm. So and she was doing that like before she was five years old. So from a very young foundational age, she's like sitting in on classes on music theory and like Nadia's organ lessons. And also apparently Nadia sang, played piano, violin, cello and harp. And like, oh my the goodness! Stuff. So yeah, just insane. Oh, wait, how old was Nadia? Um, ten when she started at the. Oh, she was and nine. She's learning. Yeah, when she started like, there, five instruments. Just ever so casually, it's fine. <laughs> so, like I said, young age, they are both very involved in the arts. Though one thing that I noticed, so her, their father was in their seventies when they were born. So he was a pretty old man having babies, and year nineteen hundred. Um, her father, Ernest, died, um, and apparently money started becoming a really big problem for them because of mm-hmm. that. Um, I thought this was kind of funny that their mom, who had a pretty extravagant lifestyle, um, the royalties that they received from the performances of their late um, husband and father's music were not really sufficient enough to live on. And so Nadia started to work at the conservatoire and became a teacher so that she could contribute to her just to supporting her family. So, but when she was 13, essentially, is when she started teaching to try and support the family, which is crazy that she's the 13-year-old teacher, but I think it just goes to show her talent and ability as a musician that there were people who were like, oh, yes, I want this 13-year-old to teach my child music. Okay, so with Nadia, though, she continued on in her music education, was doing very well in it. In 1903, she won a first prize in harmony, um, she continued to study for years and earned money through her organ and piano performances. So I think organ and piano were her primary instruments. She studied composition with Faré, and in the 1904 competitions, she came first in three categories, organ, accompaniment, and fugue composition. And then apparently there was a, at that exam, there was when a renowned French pianist, organist, and composer who took interest in her career. So like, from a very, very young age, she's, and as a teenager, she's winning these competitions. She is getting lots of recognition for her work. And then in the autumn of 1904 is soon after she began to teach even more from her family's apartment. Um, and then in addition to the private lessons she had there, she started holding like Wednesday afternoon group classes of like analysis, analyzing wow. music and sight singing. And apparently like that group afternoon classes was pretty much something that she maintained for the rest of her life which I thought was really cool that's cool Mm -hmm. so just for a very young age just teaching and you can tell this is something that she really loves to do um I Mm -hmm. think obviously I think it started out of out of necessity's sake um you know because of her family's situation but it seems to me that you know like she was good at it obviously because she kept yeah to pursue it and kind of think of new ways to do it and she obviously enjoyed it. Obviously. You don't start like an additional group yeah. if you don't like what you're doing. Totally. Um, but her goal was to win the first Grand Prix de Rome, was win first at it, just like her father had done. Apparently, she worked tirelessly towards it. Um, in addition to her increasing teaching and performing commitments, apparently, she first submitted work for judging in 1906, but failed to make the first round. In 1907, she progressed to the final round, but did not win. Um, and then mm. in the following year, 1908, apparently she kind of started a little bit of a controversy because she submitted instru- instrumental music, an instrumental fugue for the competition, but the competition required a vocal fugue. Oh. And apparently the subject was taken up the national and international newspapers and was resolved only when the French Minister of Public Information decreed that her work should be judged on the musical merit alone. And then she ended up winning second prize for that instrumental composition. Wow. It's kind of crazy that it was that big of a deal that the newspapers wrote about it. I know. It. That's what I'm like. like. International newspapers are talking about this teenager not following the rules to a competition and different arguments for people saying if it should be graded or not which I just think is funny (laughs) that's crazy yeah but she ended up getting second and it kind of seems like after that she was still hoping for it after she got second so she entered again in the 1909 competition but she failed to place in the final round at all so after that Mm. I think she was like okay you know I've tried four years in a row I got second place which is obviously very good considering the amount of compositions they got but she was done But kind of switching gears to talk about Lily a little bit, 
Apparently in 1909, her sister, who was then 16, Lily, announced to the family her intention to become a composer and then win the Prix de Rome herself. So. Okay. Little sibling rivalry. I know. Sibling rivalry. And I should mention, too, that, like, Lily is going to school alongside with Nadia. Obviously, she started at a very young age, like, t- like going to classes with her, but then on her own merit and, you know, as just herself, she started going. So, in 1912 is when Lily first competed in the Prix de Rome, but during her performance, she actually collapsed due to her illness. So, that was very oh. sad. But in 1913, at the age of 19, she competed again and she ended up winning and she became the first woman to ever win the first place prize wow I know. and so her the music composition was a cantata this cantata it had many performances during her lifetime and because of this prize she actually gained a contract with a publisher whose name was recordy so she was able to start living as a composer and like working as one um at the same time though nadia shifted her focus i think from composition i think like i said she took a little bit of a break but she made her debut as a conductor um and that's something that she did a lot so that's nice she found her own little niche area so then the war happens in 1914 um, or i guess before the war happened but you know it was coming so public programs were reduced So Nadia definitely had to put her performing and conducting on hold, but she continued to teach privately. Something that was interesting is that Nadia was then now drawn to Lily's work that she was doing for the war. And by the end of the Mm. year, the sisters together organized a charity, which was essentially created to supply food, clothing, money, and letters from home to soldiers who had been musicians before the war, which I thought was really nice that... Lily was super involved in that, and so Nadia was like, okay, I want to get involved in this too, and they together ran that charity, which I thought was really nice. But then, this is kind of when the story is a little sad. Mm -hmm. Lily suffered, like I mentioned, from chronic illness throughout her whole life. There's some people who thought maybe she's had, she actually had Crohn's disease, but you know, that wasn't really diagnosed at the time. Yeah. She ended up dying young um she died march of 1918 when she was just 24 years old oh my gosh that's as old as i am now Mm -hmm. and something that like apparently like leading up to the time of her death you know she traveled she completed several works in italy after winning the prix de rome but then obviously once her health started failing she returned home that's when she started becoming involved in world war one um and her last years were also very productive though musically she labored to complete i think she probably knew that she wasn't you know doing well so she worked tirelessly to finish as much musical works as she could um apparently though there is left an unfinished opera she had spent on most of her last words and there's only just like a couple copies of that even left of the unfinished opera which very very sad and nadia you know of course like i mentioned she kind of vowed to her father at a very very young age to protect her little sister and didn't I mean couldn't you know it's not that she didn't she just you know there's just you just can't do it against that but she really struggled you can't do that yeah Mm -hmm. with the death of her sister and there's a quote that says from Janice Brooks about it and it says the dichotomy between private grief and public strength was strongly characteristic of Nadia's frame of mind in the immediate aftermath of World War One Guilt at surviving her talented siblings seems to have led to determination to deserve Lily's death, which Nadia framed as redemptive sacrifice by throwing herself into work and domestic responsibility. As Nadia wrote in her date book in January 1919, I place this new year before you, my beloved Lily. May it see me fulfill my duty towards you so that it is less terrible for mother and that I try to resemble you. So I think this is when Mm -hmm. Nadia shifted to being like, okay, I'm going to support mom. I'm going to, you know, like make enough money for home but then also throughout her life she definitely became a champion for her sister's works and like i'll mention it as we go forward but in like a lot of her concerts that she would put on or that she would record she would perform a lot of lily's music which i think is really sweet that she recognized kind of like the brilliance that was gone too soon and wanted to do her part in preserving that so it's very sad, but yeah, they're like they're very much just linked, I think, again, because they were just very important to one another. So in 1919, she performed in more than 20 concerts, and she often programmed her own music and that of her sister, like I mentioned. So 
She was very, very involved in that. There was a new music school that was founded in Paris um, after the end of the war, um, which opened that year. And she was invited to join the school where she ended up teaching classes in harmony, counterpoint, musical analysis, organ and composition. So beyond just her private teaching, she (laughs) became like an actual teacher in the music school and like taught basically everything. So yeah, I was like every single subject yeah. <laughs> and basically just knew how to do everything perfectly. Apparently. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, this is kind of a funny story about Nadia. So basically it seems that she s- did not really compose much after the death of her sister. But in 1920, she wrote a series of songs to words by Camille Mauclair. And in 1921, she performed at two concerts in support of women's rights, um, both of which her, you know, Lily's music was also programmed. But it's kind of funny because later in life, she claimed to have never been involved with feminism and that women should not have the right to vote as they, quote, lacked the necessary political sophistication, which I just think is funny. I think it's like and I'll talk about it later. There's a there's a quote I'll read where it's like her feminism is very interesting because it's like she's obviously like a powerhouse working woman and yet Mm -hmm. when it comes to like almost like other women she's kind of like "Mm, no but I can do it yeah I don't think you guys can which I don't know I'm just intrigued by it it's funny it's just funny to me that she's like oh well they we don't know enough about politics so we can't vote and it's like but what about all you know about okay. music? Like, what if someone was saying yeah. that about you and music? <laughs> yeah, I was like, well, what about everything you're passionate about? You obviously think that you have a place there mm-hmm. and that you have every right to do that. And, yeah, I think that that's what sometimes people forget is that it's like, oh, just because you're not interested in it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean that someone else doesn't want to do it. I, I agree. <laughs> but continuing on with her professional life, which was pretty much constant and very successful, in the summer of 1921, the French Music School for Americans opened and she was a teacher there for harmony um in mm. yeah for harmony she taught harmony there um and then she had a close friend who headed the piano departments at both the Paris Conservatory and this new school um and that was like it was important because it was supposed to be a draw for american students and apparently she was very like she was a big part of like that in that effort to bring mm. over american students and apparently she inaugurated this custom which would continue for the rest of her life of inviting the best students to her summer residence for one weekend for lunch and dinner and like I think it was like people who she thought was good enough to go and among these students attending the very first year was Aaron Copeland and if you don't know who Aaron Copeland is he was a very successful and prominent American composer he's probably one of the Mm. most famous American classical composers Um, okay and he taught and he took lessons from her that's the level of fame I aspire to reach. Just the point where I can invite people over for lunch and dinner. Yeah, and that'd be like a big deal that you're inviting them over. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break just to spotlight one of our new favorite women artists. I don't know if I've already spotlighted her or not. I don't think so because I wasn't following her. So I'm going to go off of that. Perfect. But um, I found her on TikTok And I've actually seen one of her TikToks previously, like a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I ran across another one and I ended up following her. But she does a couple of different things. She's a ceramic artist in, um, or a potter, I guess is what she calls herself, in Australia. And her name is Shelby Sherritt. And so her um, Instagram is shelby.sherritt.art. And her... um, TikTok is just Shelby Sherrod Art. Um, I'll spell it really quick. It's S-H-E-L-B-Y-S-H-E-R-R-I-T-T. Oh, yeah. I don't think you've shouted her out yet. Okay, good. Very cute. Um, yeah. She has, like, a bunch of mystery molds right now that she got from something, like Gumtree. I don't know if that's, like, a thrifting thing or whatever. But she bought a bunch of these molds, and she, like – puts the clay in them without looking and then like opens it up later and then paints them and stuff, which is really fun. And then she also makes these mugs where she like stamps in letters from like famous quotes from TV shows or like all sorts of things. And there's this one that she did of like an Australian politician, I think giving like a feminist speech. Ooh, I, yeah, that's phenomenal. So yeah, the mugs are awesome. She has a bunch of other stuff. I know she sells things on her website, I believe. But 
I just like watching her process of making everything. It's really fun. Oh, it's and beautiful. It makes me wish I had like a kiln and I know. molds and stuff. But so beautiful. So much fun. So she's a lot of fun to follow on TikTok. Highly recommend. Or you can follow her on Instagram as well. And I think she also has a YouTube channel. So all the things. All the things. Okay, so for my spotlight today, um, the person, she's a painter. And it's Ooh. Isabel M. Rich. And she's also one that I was like, I don't know if I've spotlighted her, but I don't think I have. I follow just like a local musician who like shouted her out like I think almost like years ago. And ever since then, I've been following her and I'm obsessed. But she is a painter in California. And um, yeah, she does so much just beautiful works of art. I think what she does so cool is it's like she does like portraits of people, but like also people in water. So it's peop- it's just so beautiful. Ooh. These are so cool. They are so cool and beautiful. The way she's able to capture all of the colors mm-hmm. in the water. I'm obsessed with it. That's so cool. Yeah. So go give her a follow. Um, she has a really cool account. I know she like went to art school and yeah, just from like following her a lot and like, you know, reading all about her stuff. Um I think that as far as like um, purchasing her artwork, I think you can like commission it. I don't know. It doesn't like she does like prints or anything really like that. Maybe she does. But anyways, very, very beautiful. And yeah, go check her out again. That's Isabel M. Rich. Yeah. And just a reminder to everyone, you can send us in any people that we should spotlight, including yourself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we're always looking for new artists to follow. Absolutely. All right. Now back to the show. She, though, is very, very busy because she is teaching, performing, composing, writing letters. Um, She started also doing music criticism, and that kind of took a toll on her health, where she was getting migraines and, like, things like that. So in order to, like, maintain her living standards for her and her mother, she shifted her focus and mainly focused on teaching, um, and that Mm -hmm. was her main source of income. Fare, though, who, you know, like I mentioned, was a longtime family friend, believed that she was mistaken to stop composing. Um, but she mm-hmm. told him that, quote, if there is one thing of which I am certain is that I wrote useless music, which oh, I know she did not write useless <laughs> music. Oh, that's sad. But I, think, I know. I think it's sad to sh- see like and I think there, there's a tie with that and Clara Schumann where both of them just didn't think they wrote anything good enough. And so they both gave up. And it's just really sad because it's like if they would have maybe been a little bit more confident in that, who knows, maybe it could have taken them a little bit farther. I don't know. That's such a sad thing to say. I know. In 1924, though, she toured around the U.S. and she played a lot of Lily and her student Aaron Copeland's music, which I thought was really cool. This is something interesting. So in the year 1925, she approached a publisher to inquire if they would be interested in publishing her methods of teaching music to children, but nothing came of this. They weren't interested. And after that, she kind of abandoned trying to write about her teaching and pedagogy ideas, which is... Wait, but now I'm interested. I know. Which is so sad because like, obviously, like at this point... She's been teaching since her father died in like the 1900, like in like, you know, the very, very beginning of the 1900s. She's so it's 1925 now. She's been teaching for over 20 years and is obviously very good at it. She's teaching at conservatories like. Yeah. And they never followed up with it. And she just kind of was like, OK, well, I guess that's not wanted. And it's like, no, like, oh, I just wish she would have. pursued That would have been great. I know. It would have been cool to see. I'm always like all for new teaching methods being found and discovered and talked about. And like obviously <laughs> she was a great teacher, so yeah, at like multi multiple different levels. Like she's been teaching music since she was 13, mm-hmm. and now she's like teaching at, at like a professional level, yeah, as well. Like it would have been cool to hear what she had to say about the topic. Exactly, but- and something that I think is a testament to um how good she was and how other people revered her and like look towards her um music teaching and just ability so gershwin um who is another very big deal music composer yeah, i know that yeah, name like, that's like the first one that i've been like yeah i know who that yeah, is exactly 
probably a bigger like you know more famous than copeland is i i think. yeah i mean yeah obviously if you know the name he yeah. visited her in 1927 and asked for lessons in composition and apparently they spoke for a half an hour after which nadia announced i can teach you nothing and apparently he took that as a compliment and like that was like a story he would tell people probably to be like even she said that she can't teach me anything so i think that just like shows huh. how big of a deal it was that like that was a bragging point for him that he was able to go to her and have her be like i don't think i can give you anything else and he was like okay well that means i really know my stuff then so after this time great depression obviously started Mm -hmm. around the 30s um she resumed conducting here and there but obviously played an effect you know just on everyday life as far as what was an option for her yeah to do her mother died in 1835 um but this Mm -hmm. kind of like freed her i guess from her ties to paris um so after this she started doing a lot more u.s tours and teaching a lot so in Mm -hmm. 1938 she returned to the u.s for a longer tour and also like doing a series of lectures and she did lectures at radcliffe harvard the longy school of music and to broadcast for nbc apparently which is really cool wow during this tour she was the first woman to conduct the boston symphony orchestra which is amazing um in her three months there she gave over a hundred lecture recitals and concerts so that's amazing that included the premiere the world premiere of Stravinsky's Dumberton Oaks concerto and then here's just a funny like description I guess of her um at the time she was seen by the American sculptor Catherine Lane Weems who recorded in her diary her voice is surprisingly deep she's quite slim with an excellent figure and fine features her skin is delicate her hair graying slightly she wears pince-nez and oh dear just gesticulates as she becomes excited talking about music which I think is nice Mm. yeah so she loved music and it was very apparent so with this tour, I think she did another one the following year. She became the first woman to conduct the New York um, Philharmonic Orchestra at Carnegie Hall, the Philadelphia Orchestra, and the Washington National Symphony Orchestra. She gave 102 lectures in 118 days across the United States, which is amazing. That's a lot. And like so many things she was the first woman to do, which makes it even so more funny and interesting to me, like her own perspectives on feminism. Because yeah. I'm like, you are like... Breaking through glass ceilings, girl, and, like, not even, like... She's like, but we don't need to vote. Yeah. <laughs> just like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> I'll just, like, I'm, like, product of your time period, Nadia, you silly, That's silly lady. Funny. After this, though, the Second World War is obviously building up. She's back in France living. Apparently, she helped her students leave France, which is really cool. And she made plans to do so mm. herself. She kind of waited till last minute. Um, and but as soon as German Germany made an attack against France, um, they pretty much waited the last moments before the invasion and occupation. And she arrived in New York on November November sixth, nineteen forty. She did go back to Paris though. At the end of nineteen forty five, she returned to f- returned to France. She accepted a position of professor at um, for piano accompaniment at the Piano Conservatoire, which is cool. Um, in 1953, she was appointed no, the overall cool. director of the, I forgot to mention the school, but the school that was kind of created after the First World War that was kind of meant to bring over American students, that was F- Fontaine Blue School. And she in 1953, she was appointed the overall director for that school. Um, and then, mm. though, throughout the remainder of her life, she continued to tour through surrounding countries and teaching and all of that good stuff. <laughs> So very accomplished at the end of though, you know, this is kind of the end of her life. Um, apparently her eyesight and hearing began to fade, fade towards the end of her life. This is kind of a nice story that August 13th, 1977, um, in advance of her 90th birthday, she was given a surprise birthday celebration at Fountain Blues, the, you know, the school English garden. Mm-hmm. Apparently the school chef had prepared a large cake on which was inscribed 1887. Happy birthday to you, Nadia Boulanger. When the cake was served, 90 small white candles were on the pond, illuminated the area. And then her then protege um, performed a piece that he had composed for the very occasion, um, which I just thought was nice. Like, obviously, she was very well respected and revered by the school that she worked on, and they really loved her. And apparently, she worked until her death 
1979 in Paris, and she was buried um, right next to her sister and her parents. Uh, just this insane, long accomplished life. Some notes I want to make about kind of her teaching style and things that her students said about her. So she was originally asked about the difference between well-made work and a masterpiece. And she replied that I can tell whether a piece is well-made or not. And I believe there are conditions about which masterpieces cannot be about which masterpieces cannot be achieved. But I also believe that when what defines a masterpiece cannot be pinned down. I won't say that the criterion for a masterpiece does not exist, but I do not know what it is. Hmm. And then also another thing yeah. is apparently she claimed to enjoy all good music. Um, apparently um, Lennox Berkeley said a good waltz has just as much value to her as a good fugue. And this is because she judges a work solely on its aesthetic content, which I like that. It's like, even though she was this amazing musician and like accomplished classical composer that she still wasn't um super pretentious about it that she was just willing to enjoy music of all kinds yeah. no matter where it came from which i thought was nice as far as her teaching style though apparently she insisted on complete attention at all times and quote anyone who acts without paying attention to what he is doing is wasting his life i go so far to say that life is denied by lack of attention whether it be cl to cleaning windows or trying to write a masterpiece which I like that sentiment because I feel like it, like there's a lot of times where I'm like, you know, maybe half involved in something and while also on my phone while also scrolling Instagram. And that's no good way to live life. And I like that she said yeah. whether you are washing your windows or you are writing a masterpiece. And I like that she put them on equal ground that she's like, just give your full attention to it. And I'm like, well, that's awesome. Yeah, that is very good advice. That's a good way to look at life. I agree. Oh, and this kind of goes, talk a little bit about her complicated feminism, I guess. Um, in 1920, <laughs> two of her favorite female students left her to marry. So, you know, they left, got married, and apparently she thought they had betrayed their work with her and their obligation to music. But at the same time, she kind of had this contradictory view to women in music because despite her success and Lily's success, she also kind of held also this belief throughout her life that a woman's main duty was to wife and mother. Like it's like she was mad at her students for abandoning her, their music, but then also believed that that was the primary role for women. But apparently Ned Roram, who is another um, composer said that she would always give the benefit of the doubt to her male students while overtaxing the females. She taught teaching as a privilege, a pleasure, a privilege and a duty. No one is obliged to give lessons. She said it poisons your life if you give lessons and it bores you. So I just think it's so funny, though, that like she huh. she like I said, like she gave the male students the benefit of the doubt, but was par particularly hard on her. The woman students. I don't know if maybe she saw herself in them, saw Lily yeah. in them. I would assume that would be the only thing she expected better yeah. of them because of her own experience. Yeah. But I also think it's funny that like there's that contradictory of like expecting certain things from other people. Yeah. Like, getting upset when they left, but then also being like, but a woman's primary goal is wife and mother. But was she ever a wife and a mother? I don't think so. It seems weirder to me to get mad at someone else for doing it when you think that that's the primary role. I don't think she got married, because the only thing in this article is about, yeah, there's nothing about her par her sibling, like, children. There's nothing about a husband. And it didn't mention it in the articles mm -hmm. I was reading about her. It didn't say explicitly that she didn't get married, but... I mean, yeah. she didn't. So but that's you're right. That's even more funny. Like she didn't get married. She didn't have a, like children. She took care of her mom. Yeah. But but then to be like, that's the primary role of a woman, mm -hmm. when like you haven't done it. That's I funny. I know. <laughs> Apparently, though, she was like she was a very good teacher. She accepted pupils from any background, and her only criteria was that they had to want to learn. And something that mm -hmm. I think is characteristic of a good t student, I mean, a good teacher, is she treated each student differently just depending on their ability and what they wanted to get out of it. Yes. But apparently, though, her talented students were expected to answer the more difficult questions and just perform while under stress, whereas the less able ones who did not intend to follow a career in music were just treated a little bit more leniently. But I think that's totally fine. And like, as I teach voice lessons, too, and I, I pay attention to that, I'm like, OK, which one of my students here are obviously just here because they want to sing? Versus which ones are like here because they're taking this seriously and I can adjust yeah. how I teach them and that's okay. You know, like each student has different no, expectations. definitely. I think that's a great way to teach. Mm -hmm. I think you should always like keep that in mind because obviously if they 
want to get different things out of it, then your teaching style should change slightly. I agree. Something funny, though, is apparently, so Michael Legrand claimed, I think that was a student of hers, said, claimed that the ones she disliked were graduated with the first prize in one year. The good pupils (laughs) never got a reward, so they stayed. I was there for seven years and I never obtained a first prize. So so I just think that's funny that she was like, okay, get out of here. Yeah, that's kind of sad in a way that like her favorites are the ones that she never really rewarded in that way. Tried to like trap them in. Yeah. It was like, you have to stay here. <laughs> uh, a quote though about each student kind of being approached differently. It says when you, she said, excuse me, when you accept a new pupil, the first thing to is to try to understand what natural gift, what intuitive talent he has. Each individual poses a particular problem. It does not matter. And then she also said, it does not matter what style you use as long as you use it consistently, which I just really like her attitude towards music. It feels healthy and it feels just like very encouraging, even though she was obviously not perfect in how she dealt with her (laughs) students that were more talented or whatever. Yeah. Very few people are perfect Mm -hmm. though, so... Apparently, she also claimed that she could not bestow creativity onto her students, that she could only provide help, um, only help them to become intelligent musicians who understood the craft of composition. Um, She said, I can't provide anyone with inventiveness, nor can I take it away. I can simply provide you the liberty to read, to listen, to see, to understand. Wow. And that only inspiration can make the difference between a well-made piece and an artistic one. She believed that the desire to learn, to become better, was all that was required to achieve, and she always I mean, but always provided that the right amount of work was put in as well, which I... Wow, that's such an important thing as an art teacher to Mm -hmm. be like, hey, look, I can't give you creativity. Like, I can teach you all the other stuff, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, like, it comes down to you. Yes, I know. Copeland, who I mentioned, one of her, I think, biggest students, said about her that Nadia Boulanger knew everything there was to know about music. She knew the oldest and the latest music, pre-Bach and post-Stravinsky. All technical know-how was at her fingertips, harmonic transposition, the figured bass, score reading, organ registration, instrumental techniques, structural analysis, the school fugue and the three fugue, the Greek modes and Gregorian chant. So like everyone just knew she was like the best and knew so much. Something just of her like legacy. Apparently in 1939, Nadia, with the help of some American friends, created the Lily Boulanger Memorial Fund. And the two objective is to perpetuate Lily's music and memory, but mm-hmm. also to financially support other talented musicians who might need it. So that just kind of shows like throughout her life, she continued to try and champion her sister and her music and do things in her honor. Yeah. Nadia ended up having over 600 students and is kind of considered like one of the best music teachers of all time, which is um Yeah, 600 students? 600 music holy cow i can't even imagine i know that's a lot of people and like obviously like her influence can be felt in just all of them so so that's the life of nadia um obviously there's not as much information about lily but you know lily just didn't Mm -hmm. get the chance to live as long but i think it's really cool that you can see how obviously nadia really loved that sister of her it was very affected by the passing of her death and went on to triumph her sister's competition in music which i just think is really beautiful and that is yeah nadia seems like a very brilliant talented woman who i feel like i would have loved to read her book on teaching music so i'm very sad it does not exist same i would have too even though I'm not, like, teaching music, but I just feel like it would have been interesting. Oh, yeah, because I feel like there's some things with teaching, especially teaching art in general, that are just mm-hmm. applicable for everything. I actually wish there was more, like, cross-disciplinary instruction yeah. for art in general. Because I feel like it's very, this is how you do this, this is how you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, art kind of all ends up being taught the same, I think, in a lot of ways. I agree. That's so cool. I was looking at pictures of them. And it's kind of sad because they have all these pictures of Nadia as, like, an older woman. Mm-hmm. And then all of the pictures of Lily. She's so young. I know. It's very sad. Yeah, she died way too soon. I feel like she'd be very strict. Yes. She definitely has, like... And something I forgot to mention that I kind of read was, like, she definitely kind of took on that role as mother and father i don't really know what the deal was with their mother but you know maybe wasn't the most responsible 
Um, doesn't sound like it. Yeah. Spending literally all of their money on her frivolous lifestyle. Exactly. So I think it kind of felt like, I feel like Nadia felt like she had to step up to make the money to be there for Lily. So I think she probably got hardened, just yeah. got hardened at a very young age and just got used to doing things herself. And I mean, also though, but was just a very, very good teacher. And yeah. Yeah. She looks like the epitome of like a strict school marm honestly teacher, kind of <laughs> cool well thank you mm-hmm. i'm gonna have to look up some of their music know, so we can post very, it on the i watched just like a very basic um like youtube video that just kind of you know showed the basic like talked about very basic information just like a three minute video um but mm-hmm. in the video it played nocturne poor violin a piano by lily boulanger and it was beautiful so i believe it yeah she has very very beautiful music that's so cool i originally first heard of them because when i first like posted on my like when we first launched this podcast we i put it you know it's on my personal instagram story just talking about it and someone who i know through the music program they messaged me and they were like hey like here's a list of people in classical music that you should check out and one of them was nadia and lily and i was like i have not heard of them um you know even after like going through music school like i hadn't i didn't recognize the name so that's why i did some research and i was like this is amazing this is beautiful so that's honestly one of the things about school that bothers me the most mm-hmm. is that I made it through school without learning about some of the most significant mm-hmm. contributors to like the field of graphic design. And a lot of them like, happen the to be heck? women. Holes in our education. It's okay. We're here to save the day. No. Have no fear. Sadie and Stani are here. <laughs> I just committed to that. Yep. Yep. Anyways, well, thank you everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed learning more mm-hmm. about this sister duo. Um, but yeah, I encourage you to go listen to some of their music. It really is beautiful. And just a reminder that you can follow us on Instagram at morethanamused.podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a TikTok. I think it's the same. Yes, it is. And we have a Patreon if you want to join as well. Get a super cute More um, Than Amused pin and exclusive bonus yes. episodes. So lots of stuff there and yeah, and then we're just happy to have all of you here and we'll be back again next week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.